Yeah, I mean, government, when you think about it, even in mentioning the word, it conjures up all kinds of uh, ideas and uh, not such good feelings. And I suppose it's because governments enact legislation, some of which makes us downright angry, but some of which makes us laugh. It's comical because of the ridiculousness of some governmental legislation. For instance, a letter was written by a man to the Secretary of Agriculture of the, uh, of the country. Here it is. Dear sir, my friend received a check for $1,000 from the government for not raising hogs. So I want to go into the not raising hogs business next year. What I want to know is, in your opinion, what's the best kind of farm not to raise hogs on? And what's the best breed of hogs not to raise? I want to be sure that I approach this endeavor in keeping with all government policies. As I see it, the hardest part of the not raising hogs program is keeping an accurate inventory of how many hogs I haven't raised. My friend is very joyful about the future of the business. You see, he's been raising hogs for over 20 years, and the best he's ever made on them was $422.90 in 1968, until this year, when he got your check for the $1,000 for not raising 50 hogs. Now, if I get $1,000 for not raising 50 hogs, then would I get $2,000 for not raising 100 hogs? I plan to operate on a small scale at first, holding myself to about 4,000 hogs not raised the first year, which would bring in about $80,000, and then I could afford an airplane. Now, one other thing. These hogs, I will not raise, will not eat 100,000 bushels of corn. I understand that the government also pays people not to raise corn and wheat. Would I qualify for payments for not raising these crops, not to feed my hogs, that I will not be raising. I want to get started as soon as possible as this seems to be a good time of the year for the not raising hogs and not planting crops business. Also, I'm giving serious consideration to the not milking cows business. And any information you would have on this endeavor would be greatly appreciated. In view of the fact that I will be totally unemployed, I will be filing for unemployment and food stamps. And I was just wondering how long that process takes. Patriotically yours. And then this person signed it. Yeah. So this is someone who saw the humor in certain legislation enacted by the government. I'm a Christian and also happen to be an American citizen, as are most of you. So we have that dual designation, and let's face facts, sometimes it's hard to see how the two work together. How could I be a faithful Christian and at the same time a good citizen of the United States of America? Sometimes there's conflict between the two, and we find ourselves asking, what is it that I owe God? What is it that I owe the government? And what do I do? If what the government is asking of me is contrary to what God is asking from me. See, these are big questions, and the text before us tonight addresses each of them. It's in Romans chapter 13. It won't take a long time. Uh, it's a key passage, however, on government. Romans chapter 13, and we'll just look at the first seven verses tonight. Remember, Romans 13 follows the first 11 chapters, which were doctrine. They told us what's true. And then chapter 12 and on tells us what we are to do. It's not good enough to know truth. 
We can't be just hearers. We have to be doers. So this is part of the doing part of Romans. This is what you ought to do with regard to government. And so here it goes, verse 1, Romans 13. Every person, so no exceptions, is to be in, here's the word we don't like, subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Well, because there is no authority except from God. Oh, my goodness, that leads to all kinds of questions already. And those authorities which exist are established by God. Mm. So I learned something about government. I'm not sure I like it, but I learned it. It's pretty clear. Government is an institution established by God. Now, we may have contempt for it. That seems to be popular today. Maybe cynical about it. Have a measure of dislike for it, but this really rebukes all that. Government is an institution established by God. See, he, he established the family. That's an institution. He, he established the church. That's a second institution. And he established the government. Those are the three God-ordained institutions, and the Bible has requirements of us to fulfill in each of these institutions. He tells us how to behave in the family, in the church, and with reference to the government. What he requires of us with regard to the institution of government is pretty clear here according to verse 1. He requires that we be in subjection to it. Why? Because governments have been established by God and therefore to submit to human government is in effect to submit to God. Think about it. But I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same thing. What about evil and unrighteous governments, the likes of which existed during the time when the people here, Christians in Rome, lived? For instance, they were under the governmental authority of evil leaders such as Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Remember him? Fiddled while Rome burned. I don't know if it's true, but history does reveal he surely had the inclination to do that sort of thing. Does what we just read in verse 1 apply to leaders such as that? What about co more contemporary evil leaders with whom we're perhaps more familiar, like uh, Hitler or, or Stalin? Do you mean to tell me verse 1 applies to Christians living under their regimes as well? Well, uh, I wish I had another answer, but the answer is yes. Based on the sovereignty of God, there is no government that has ever or that will ever exist or come to power without God ordaining it. That's what it says. There's no authority, not even Hitler's or Stalin's, except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the governments of these who I mentioned, there's so many others we could mention as well, evil, horrific leaders, their governments, well, according to verse 1, they would not have happened without God's permission. Well, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. It, it, leads, it leads to lots of... Does this mean that God approves of the specific evil policies of the, these evil civil authorities? Absolutely not. In fact, the Bible tells us he's infuriated with the evil policies 
the ungodly and unrighteous, the immoral and unethical policies of governmental leaders. The scriptures tell us God is furious about it. But then, why would God allow evil governments to exist? Well, folks, we get what we deserve. I know of no president, for instance, in recent times, or even in the entire history of our country, who forced his way into office as a result of a coup or a power play. Every person who's occupied the Oval Office has been elected. Now, you may have all kinds of questions about that, but unlike other countries, every president who has served in that highest office in the land has been duly elected. So if you've got a problem with a particular administration, maybe it's not the administrator, maybe it's the people who deserve that administrator. You know what I pray before every presidential and other election? I say, oh God, please do not give us the leader we deserve. Sometimes God says, I hear your prayer, but my answer is no. I'm going to give you the leader you deserve, and let's see how it works out for you. I mean, God certainly did this with ancient Israel. Israel in sin, God said, if you refuse to repent, I will get your attention through the governments of tyrannical leaders. I will put you under the authority of tyrants to move you to repentance. I don't know. Maybe the situation in the world today is reminiscent of God's dealing with ancient Israel. That doesn't mean he approves of evil, but it does mean he permits even unrighteous, ungodly leaders to occupy their position, and sometimes it's to bring the population to knees, to our knees, where we say, oh God, be our king, we've desired another in human form. We put our hopes in a person instead of in you. Oh, God, move us to repentance as a nation. So are we saying that if Christians find themselves under the authority of godless and unrighteous governmental leaders, that they are to submit to them? I, I will let God... God's word speak for itself. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And again, why is this the case? Because as we read in verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God, and those which exist are established by God. So, folks, to resist government is to resist God. It gets worse. Look at verse 3. Rulers, this is the ideal. Rulers are not a cause of fear. This is the ideal for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, then do what is good. You'll have praise from the same. It, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword 
for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I find in verse 4 the essential role of government. It's uh, contained in two phrases that are repeated twice in verse 4. It's this phrase, minister of God. Your translation might say servant of God. It's the same thing. The government, two times it says there in one verse, is established by God in order to serve his purposes. Want to know something interesting? The underlying word, Greek word for minister, is the word from which we get our word deacon. Same word, deacon. You know what this means? Government is meant to be the deacon of God. Yep, that's what it says. It means the role of government, knowingly or unknowingly, is to serve the purposes of Almighty God, and God can get the job done even through godless leaders because he's a leader who's sovereign. Therefore, verse 5, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. God said, I'll stir up your conscience. If you're rebellious and refuse to submit to governmental authority, if you do not have a respectful, submissive spirit, if you do not place yourself in subjection to the laws of the land, you will be subject to the wrath of the government, and not only that, a convicted, guilty conscience. And so it says in verse 6, now it gets quite specific, because of this, you also pay Taxes. Isn't this a timely text in light of the season? We're in tax-paying season now, or tax-not-paying season. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. There's that phrase again. Devoting themselves to this very thing. So why, why is the issue of taxes specifically brought up here? It's because taxes are very frequently an area in which there is lack of submission to the government, even on the part of Christians, you know. Do you know some, some believers withhold a portion of their taxes from the government? This guy did. Uh, he, he sent a letter to the IRS saying, uh, I, I, I didn't pay the taxes I should have paid this past year, and I've been unable to sleep. So enclosed is $150. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest. So you say, okay, I got this tax thing, and I got to pay my taxes, but what if the taxes are exorbitant, or what if they're used for ungodly purposes? Folks, that was exactly the situation when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. The taxation system in Rome was high, exorbitant, and surely went to ungodly purposes. So Paul, even in that environment, is saying, pay your taxes. That's part of being in subjection to the government. You know what Paul is doing? He is simply reflecting the teaching of one greater than Paul, the Lord Jesus himself, who taught in Mark chapter 12, verses 14 and through 17. Listen, they came and said to him, Jewish religious leaders, they wanted to trick the Lord. They came to him, they said, teacher, we know you're truthful and deferred to no one, for you're not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. So here's what they said. Is it lawful to pay a tax, a poll tax, to Caesar? He was the ruling governmental entity, the emperor. Or, or, or not. Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? 
But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius, an ancient coin. Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, you know what he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What belongs to Caesar? Those things on which his image was inscribed, like money, tax. What belongs to God? Those people on whom his image is inscribed. The first book of the Bible tells us we have been created in the image of God. Therefore, we owe to Caesar's outward things like tax, But we owe to God, the giver of life, the inner person of our heart, the essential substance of our being. His image is stamped upon us. That's what the Lord taught. So we are to do what verse 7 tells us to do. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear or respect to whom Respect is due and honor to whom honor. Folks, as Christians, we are often offended, even angered by the policies of our government. But I must say, according to this passage, that does not give us permission to show disrespect to the government. Now look, we may not have much respect for a particular political leader, but we must have respect for the office he or she holds. Why? For there is no governmental office except that which is established by God. So even in our disagreement, resistance, and opposition, we must show respect for the office. I raised my kids, I don't know if they comply with this, never to refer to the president, whoever he is, uh, as uh, by last name only. Never, never. Though maybe I didn't vote for that person and wished when they're of voting age they wouldn't either. Still, out of respect for the office, you don't refer to the president by last name only. Respect, you see. So disobeying, folks, the law of the land is serious business. Yet, sometimes... Now it gets sticky here. We must, because there's a conflict of interests between obeying God and obeying the government. Sometimes they're mutually exclusive. What do we do then when the government requires something of us that would obligate us to disobey God? Well, I want to share with you some illustrations in the Bible of how people did this. Civil disobedience, it's called. In Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives were ordered by their governmental leader, Pharaoh, to murder all newborn Jewish babies. They did not. They disobeyed that order. In Exodus 5, Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go so as to worship God. They went anyway. In Joshua 2, Rahab, she was a prostitute, she lived in Jericho, refused to reveal the whereabouts of Jewish ones who were spying out the land. Instead, she hid them 
provided them with a way of escape, contrary to the dictates of the government. In Daniel 3, we read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image. Nebuchadnezzar was the king, the leader. In Daniel 6, Daniel refused an order requiring him to cease worshiping God in prayer. In Matthew 2, the Magi disobeyed King Herod's command that they report to him after completing their visit to the infant Jesus. In fact, in a dream, God told them to disobey. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the Sanhedrin, the uh, Congress, you might say, of ancient Israel, demanded that the apostles cease preaching the gospel. They chose to disobey. What is it that all these examples of uh, civil disobedience have in common? It's this. In each of the cases I just cited, people were commanded by the government to do something that would have caused them to violate one of the commandments of God. When that happens, we must obey God rather than man. So, folks, though every Christian citizen may not at various times be able to obey the government in every instance, true submission to the government is always required. So, when a Christian cannot obey as a matter of conscience, he can still demonstrate a submissive and respectful spirit to those in authority. We're not given permission to be insubordinate as Christian citizens. And one of the ways in which a Christian citizen who must disobey the government can show his spirit of submissiveness is to accept the consequences of disobeying the law of the land. And that is exactly what happened in the cases I cited. Daniel did not object to the imposed consequences, neither, neither did the apostles. They showed utmost respect for the law of the land by saying, President, Prime Minister, Caesar, whoever it is, we must respectfully decline to obey your law for it puts us in conflict with the higher law of God. That being said, we respect your authority. You occupy it, perhaps unbeknownst to you, according to the sovereignty of God. And even though you don't know him by name, he's making use of you in spite of you. So, though we surely cannot, do not respect your policies, we show respect to you in the office you occupy. And we are willing to submit to the laws of the land by accepting without any resistance the consequences of our civil disobedience. That person is showing ultimate respect, it seems to me, for the duly appointed authorities of the land. In every case of civil disobedience in the Bible that I am aware of, the government ordered people to do something that would cause them to disobey God. But I cannot find, maybe you can, I cannot find in the Bible one example of authorized civil disobedience when the government simply passes a law permitting evil. It's only when the government passes a law requiring us to do evil that we must respectfully disobey. Tragically, our government has passed a law permitting the evil of abortion. 
It's tragic. We ought to do everything we can uh, to, to undo those laws. I got it. But allowing that evil is a far cry from compelling that evil. If you're expecting a child and the government said you already have three, four exceeds the limit, you must abort that child. You must say, I have respect for your role in the office, for it's established by God. You have no authority but by Him. For the life of me, I can't see why he appointed you to this office, and I can't see what good is going to come from your administration. Nonetheless, that's, that's up to God. He's making use of you whether you know it or not. And I must respectfully say we will not comply with that law, for that law puts us in a state of disobedience with regard to the values, convictions, and standards of God. And his law takes precedence over any law of the land. So, folks, in conclusion, here's the deal about government. It's not to be resented. We do. That's wrong. Government is not to be resented. We just found out it's established by God. He has purposes for it. Governments go awry. But that does not nullify the fact that there is no authority except that established by God. And God's purpose for government is to protect the citizenry and deal with evildoers. Governments sometimes become evil, but once again, the institution of government is not inherently wrong. It's a God thing. So government is neither to be resisted nor worshipped. Worshipped. If we say, I will never go against my government, then we have just idolized the government. We put it in the place of God. So to resent the government is wrong. To say there'll never be a case where I will disobey the government, I'll do whatever it asks me to do, that could be wrong too. What if the government is asking you to do something God doesn't want you to do, you see? So now in real closing, let me say this. I think it's impossible to be a good Christian and a bad citizen. In fact, I think if you or I are good Christians... We ought to be the perfect, the best citizens. Why? Because of who we represent, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not withhold his best from us. And so, Lord Jesus, Lord above all lords and king above all kings, we respectfully submit to your plan to accomplish purposes through the three institutions of family, church, and government. We have obligations. They're different to each. And first is to acknowledge that you've established the authority in the family, in the church, and in the government, and insubordination to any of these institutions will bring upon us the wrath of the leaders and also a guilty conscience. Lord Jesus, though we may not be able in all cases to obey what governments require of us as Christians, still we're never permitted to be insubordinate nor to show respect for the office nor the institution of government, which is your idea. So, oh God, we don't want to resent the institution, nor do we want to be unduly dependent on it, nor do we want to worship it. Help us to be balanced and help us as Christians who benefited from the truths of the first 
11 chapters of Romans. Help us in the power of your spirit to do what's required of us in this passage, and that is to be the best citizens we can possibly be. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.